You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Please, London, go crazy for the one and only, the wizard, Chris Jericho! Talk is Jericho, baby. Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho, mama. Talk is me. All right, welcome to Talk is Jericho. It is the pod of thunder and rock and roll. And if you haven't booked your cabin yet for Chris Jericho's Rock and Wrestling Rager at Sea, Four Leaf Clover, you still have time. There are still cabins left at ChrisJerichoCruise.com. We are announcing new names on a weekly basis. Jade Cargill, guest host of the cruise, Danhausen and Dante Martin from AEW. And we are setting sail February 2nd to the 6th from Miami to Great Stirrup K, our own private island. Come hang with me, and it is a very stacked lineup. I mentioned the uh, AEW guys. There's going to be more announcements this week, and we're going to determine the first ever Jericho Cruz Oceanic Champion as well. We got comedy. We got music. We got Fozzie. We got quarantine. We got live podcasts. Dave Schrader of the Paranormal 60 will be there. It is a great time. It is a vacation of a lifetime. Those who have been on it know this. Those who are about to go on it are going to find out. Go to ChrisJerichoCruise.com and be a part of the fun. Speaking of Fozzie and music, we are in the UK right now and playing Ulster Hall in Belfast, Ireland tonight. It's my birthday, November 9th. I have to say that again, sorry. Speaking of music and Fozzie, we're in the UK right now playing Ulster Hall in Belfast tonight, which is my birthday, November 9th. I am 52 years old. Can you believe it? Uh, I can't either. Uh, But we are in Swansea tomorrow night and we're going to Bournemouth, Bristol, Glasgow, and wrapping up the tour in London on November 14th, which is such a coincidence because I was in London back in July. I did the Jericho Chronicles one-man shows over there in the summertime, a different theme, a different uh, group of stories every night. I have uh, played two of those so far, one from Glasgow, one from Belfast, and the last of the shows is uh, coming to you today live in London the biggest, most memorable matches and feuds of my storied career. We talk about my very first match at the Moose Hall in Pinocchio, Alberta, Canada, my time in Mexico with CMLL, and how I nearly got murdered after meeting a girl uh, in a restaurant and agreeing to go to a quote-unquote party with her. I'll tell the story of going to Japan for the first time, the matches I had, the classics with Ultimo Dragon, and what happened when a young Mick Foley happened to see a young Chris Jericho and tell a young Paul Heyman about it. 
Uh, that led to my journey to, to ECW, which we talk about, and of course leading to WCW as well. I go in-depth about my title versus mask match against Juventud Guerrera, my uncensored match with Dean Malenko, and the feud leading up to that match, how I had to carry the storyline for three months by myself while Dean was off TV and away from wrestling. I talk a lot about Triple H, the bad blood between us back then, and how and why it started. Uh, and some of our really great matches, despite the personal feelings about each other, maybe because of our personal feelings about each other. Uh, all the details about the last man standing match, what a great match that was. And the famous tag match where Chris Benoit and I took on Triple H and Steve Austin, the two-man power trip. That's the match where Triple H tore his quad. I also tell the story of our 2002 Hell in a Cell match. I talk about one of my favorite feuds at the time, me and Shawn Michaels in 2008, that culminated with us in the main event of WrestleMania. Stories about working with Rey Mysterio, John Cena, Kevin Owens, and the Festival of Friendship, Kenny Omega, the Tokyo Dome, and of course we talk about AEW as well. Stadium Stampede, Blood and Guts, so many big matches are discussed. Live in London, it's my biggest matches and feuds with a few personal favors thrown in, and it starts right here, right now on Talk is Jericho. It's my birthday, oh yeah, it's my birthday, uh-huh. First of all, hello London! I will right. say, you guys, hands down, have the best questions of the tour. So well done, London, for showing up today. But we are going to start by talking about Chris Jericho's biggest matches um, and go through that. And then we're going to get to the good stuff, to your questions uh, we have right here. But let's, I thought if we're going to... Kenny, it's all good stuff. All of it. Every match. Yes. Um, before we talk about your biggest matches, I thought, why don't we just talk about your first what was your first match? What was it like? Talk us through the experience. So my first match was October 2nd, 1990 in Pinoca, Alberta, Canada, which is about halfway between Calgary and Edmonton. It took place in the prestigious Moose Hall. And the Moose Hall was right next to a mental institution which pretty much is the perfect analogy for the pro wrestling business right out of the gate. And um, it was against Lance Storm, or as he was known at the time, Lance T. Storm, and the T stands for thunder. <laughs> so we had been uh, working all summer long at the Hart Brothers Pro Wrestling Camp, and this was our big debut match. And we were on, I believe, first or second, and it was a 10-minute Broadway, which means 10-minute time limit. So it's interesting, because I just watched it back uh, a few months ago, right when I was putting together the complete list of Jericho, so maybe a year or so ago, whatever it was. And times have changed so much in how you put together matches. Like now, you put together a match pretty much, for the most part, from beginning to the end. And you might have some improv in there, but pretty much it's beginning, middle, end. There, all we had were two high spots that we had practiced over and over again at wrestling camp. And the rest of it was just making stuff up. And if you watch the last minute, we ran out of things to do. It, it was supposed to be this hot finish where it's like, okay, I'll give you a schoolboy, yeah. And then I'll roll you up, yeah. And then I'll give you a small package, yeah. What else do we know? I don't know. Give me another small package. So you watch it back, and it's just like it was just a different time. But I do remember specifically, there was probably about 80 people there in the Pinocchio Moose Hall. And I 
had they used to do this thing where you'd put the guy's arm on the ground, and the big move was you would stand on your hand and put your knee up and then drop your knee into the guy's arm. So I did that to Lance, and then I said, and then a kid in the crowd said, do it again. And I said, should I do it again? And like four kids went, yeah. And I was like, I'm bigger than Hulk Hogan. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. They were actually reacting and all these sort of things. So we did the match and, and had, had the Broadway and came back into the dressing room. And I remember we were just flipping out. Like we couldn't believe how amazing it was. And these people are just going crazy for us. There's 70 people from Pinocchio that will never forget this night. And at the end of the night, I got my pay envelope. Uh, said Chris Jericho, spelled J-E-R-I-C-O. It was spelled wrong. And I opened it up, and there was a $20 bill and a $10 bill. $30 for 10 minutes' work. I was like, holy shit. I make 5 bucks an hour at the deli and work 8 hours a week and get 40 bucks. I almost made the whole thing in 10 minutes. I'm rich. And that's when I was uh, stuck forever and, and hooked on the wrestling business. Thank you. And then our second match was at a kid's birthday party, and I got paid a hot dog and a glass of orange juice. So I, I did want to touch a little bit on Mexico, because you go to Mexico. What was that like? You know, you've wrestled in Canada, you've wrestled more locally, and then you're going into this complete unknown, complete foreign experience. How was that for you? Well, I mean, I was really young. So I've been a full-time wrestler by design. Obviously, I've taken breaks because I wanted to. But ever since November of uh, 1992, that, that wrestling has been my full-time job uh, unless, I don't, unless I step back. And because of Mexico. And I got there very early on, kind of in a, a minor league of Mexico in Monterey, which was kind of, like, let's say, like a ring of honor or an ECW. But the big leagues were in Mexico City. And... We had TV in Monterey that the big name, uh, the big big wig in Mexico City and Paco Alonso, someone either had told him about me or he saw me on TV and brought me up to the big leagues to hire me, which was CMLL. So it was like going to the you know the AEW or the WWE of Mexico. So it was crazy because wrestling was huge in Mexico at that time, and what I mean by that is it had just started on TV about a, a year or two prior. So rest, wrestlers, luchadors, were massive stars. You hear about Conan and Vampiro and those guys being huge names, and it's true. But right from the first week I was there, Paco gave me a push because I had long blonde hair and I was kind of a you know, good-looking guy and could do uh, uh, some high spots, but I was trained well, and I knew how to fit in with the guys just because when you're trained well, you can, you can do pretty much everything if you follow along. So right out of the gate, I was a huge star. I was on the cover of like Teen Beat Mexico, like all these teen magazines and like, uh, just this is not even exaggeration, come out of the back of the arena and screaming chicks, like, like you see like Beatlemania. And they would all wear this really like deep, bright red lipstick. And when they kissed you, you couldn't wash the shit off. So you would have these lipstick tattoos for the rest of the week, and you, you'd wipe it off, but then your face would get rid from wiping it, but still wouldn't go all the way away. But it was really, really a big deal. We were doing like 10,000 people every Friday night and every Sunday in Arena Mexico. Think about that. That'd be like having 10,000 people on a Friday and a Sunday at the O2 Arena in London every single week. 
So it was a really big deal. And right out of the gate, it gave me a taste of true celebrity as well as helped me learn as a wrestler because I wasn't in my own element. And Lucha Libre is a completely different animal. So it really did make me really good really quickly and also gave me life experience of here's what it's like to be legit famous in this little country of Mexico. And I mean, what was the experience like, you know, with the language trying to, you know, was that, was that difficult for you to try and not only have to deal with the wrestling part of it, that they have a different style, but also have to deal with... Well, it's life experience. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, you are traveling by bus to get to the different shows. So you have to buy a bus ticket. And they always go to buy my ticket. And they would say, uh, ¿Cómo te llamas? Like, what's your name? And I'd say, Chris, Chris, Irvin, 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 Irvin. But like I said, there, there was a lot of, 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 of you, would, you learned how to speak Spanish very quickly. Because if you didn't, you didn't uh, communicate with the guys in the locker room that didn't speak Spanish. You didn't uh, uh, get a drink at the bar. You didn't talk to chicks if you didn't know Spanish. And because I knew Spanish, I did know how to talk to chicks, which actually almost got me murdered. Sure, I'll tell you the story, Kenny. Please tell us the story, Chris. So I go to this restaurant. It's called Veeps, which I thought was just a cool name, and I realized years later it's VIPs. Oh, okay. <laughs> Got to get up pretty early to fool me. Um, so I go to Veeps, and I look across the way. It's kind of like a Denny's, like a family restaurant type of a thing. Like, like is it Winchester's? Is it Winchester's that you guys have here? Yeah. And uh, so I'm trying to ingratiate myself with you guys. It's like a Winchester's. Is it? No, that's not right. No, it's Weatherspoon. Weatherspoon, sorry. I, I was like, well, I'll let it go, but then if he gets tweets about it, he'll blame yeah. me for it. I knew it wasn't Winchester because nobody was saying anything. I'm like, I'm getting this really wrong. Who here likes Weatherspoon? I'm getting this really, yeah. yeah. So it's like a Witherspoons here. But Winchester's is really good. It's down in Margate. You guys got to check it out. It's a great place. Great, great place. Uh, great bangers and mash. So I'm looking across the table at this girl, and she's kind of looking at me. She's giving me the look, like, you know, like, hi. And like I said, I, I'm, I'm Corazon de Leon was my name. Uh, Lionheart in Spanish, which is funny because you have Blue Demon and Dr. Wagner and the Mexican guys, Silver King, the Mexican guys with English names, and then you got the English guy with the Mexican name, Corazon de Leon. So anyway, she's looking at me, and she's waving. So I go over there. You know, suave and debonair. I'm 22 years old, and I sit down and start using my amazing Spanish to talk to her. And she's sitting with her friend, who she says is her brother. Amazing. And then she asks me if I want to go to a party. And I'm like, of course I want to go to a party with this gorgeous woman and super famous and cool. So we get into a car, and the brother, it's her brother, is, is the guy that she was with. He's driving, and I'm sitting in the back with this girl. And we become fast friends and swapping spit and the whole thing, making out the back of the car. And I'm noticing, like, if you close your eyes, you can see bright lights. But now they're intermittent. They're flashing. And I look and I realize we're, we're kind of going, like, outside of town, like kind of in the middle of nowhere. And I'm thinking, well, like, maybe it's a bush party, which you used to have in Canada. You go into the field. And I'm like, well, where the f*** is this party? Finally, after about 30 minutes, they pull over on the side of the road and she gets out of the car, and the guy turns around and pulls a gun out into my face. Now, have you guys ever seen a James Bond movie where at the beginning, they show the guy walking, and it gets red? Well, the, the hole that you're looking at, it has, like, 
um, like uh, like little uh, divots in it, ridges in it. The reason why that is is that's what the inside of a barrel of a gun looks like. And I know this because I noticed that when the guy was holding a gun on me. I was like, oh, that's what the James Bond thing is. Now, when I've told this story in the past, people go, why don't you just punch him in the face? Why don't you just knock the gun out of his hand? It's like, it doesn't work that way. Like, you don't know what to do when someone pulls a gun out on you in the side of a a dirt road in the middle of Mexico. And I was thinking, if this guy shoots me and my mom can't find me, my mom's going to kill me. Like, I'm in so much trouble with my mom if he kills me right now. So anyways, he's, he's demanding my money, and I, what did I have? I don't know, 300 pesos, which is about 10 bucks. I give him my money, and they get in their car, and they drive away. And as they drive away, the, the chick is, like, laughing at me, and all I could think of was, like, I just bought her dinner at Veeps. It cost me 30, pa- you know, 30 pesos. So anyways, they drove away, and now I'm on the side of the road, and I have no money, and I just start walking towards the lights of Mexico City. And I'm walking, and it's walking and walking. And this, I remember this little scrawny dog came and walked with me for a while. He was my only friend. I gave him a name. I gave him the name of Terrence. I remember Terrence the dog. And then Terrence just said, okay, I'm done with this guy. He f***ed off, too, and really left me by myself. And a taxi drove by, but they wouldn't pick up uh, gringos, uh, foreigners, because I had long blonde hair. And I basically walked for three hours down this dirt highway towards Mexico City until they finally picked me up in a taxi and dropped me off at the hotel I was at where I had to go to the front desk and borrow money from the front desk guy, from the manager, to pay off the taxi cab guy. And finally, I go back, he goes, amigo, did you learn your lesson? I said, yes. He said, never take a to a party in the middle of nowhere. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. So you do the Mexico run, but then in Japan, that's when it really kind of takes off for you even more because you have that match in 1995 with Ultimo Dragon, and that ends up having big implications for you going into the U.S. Yeah. So uh, it, just to finish up on Mexico, there's a guy there called Negro Casas, and Negro Casas is the greatest wrestler in Mexican history. He still wrestles to this day, 61 years old, and he's still really good. And I learned a lot from him because he wasn't like a luchador where you're doing high spots and flips and, and flying. He was just smart. He knew his audience. And I really learned a lot from Negro Casas on how to, 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 to read the room, so to speak, and to learn uh, and go with what your audience wants. And also, too, Ultimo Dragon was in Japan. And we worked a few times. And, of course, my goal was always to go work in Japan because when I was starting, I wanted to be like, you know, Eddie Guerrero and Chris Benoit and Dean Malenko and Flying Scorpio and Liger and all the, all the animals. I wanted to be an animal in Japan. So that's kind of uh, was my goal. And then Ultimo Dragon invited me to come with him. So we worked. We were rivals. Great chemistry. One of my all-time favorite opponents. And we used to do a big show three times a year at the Sumo Arena, Ryogoku, which holds about 10,000 people, and our company was WAR, or, as they said 
It was stood for wrestling and romance. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but wrestling and romance was the name of the Japanese company that I worked for. So we had a great crowd at the Sumo Arena, and we had a match for the junior championship. And it was my first probably just great match. Like whatever a, a five-star match is, this was probably the first one in front of a huge crowd. Everything went great with a great opponent. And a young Mick Foley was in the crowd watching this match, who then went back and told Paul Heyman about the match. And then Paul asked to see a tape of it. And that's basically how I got into ECW, even though it took me a year to get there because Mick said, call Paul Heyman. So I called Paul Heyman. No answer, no answer. Finally, he answers, hello. Hey, uh, this is Chris Jericho. I've been waiting to talk to you. I got Jimmy Snooker on the other line. I'll call you right back. I wait another month, two months. Jimmy Snooker talks a long time, apparently. <laughs> Call back again, answers. Hello. Uh, hey, it's Chris Jericho. Oh, Paul's not here. This is his roommate, Dave. <laughs> Sounds exactly like Paul Heyman, by the way. <laughs> and it's like, okay, Paul will call you back when he gets home. So anyways, it was this... Paul would just not answer the phone. He was impossible to get a hold of. And then finally he called me after a year and said, Chris Jericho, I've been trying to get a hold of you for the last year. <laughs> and that's how I got into ECW. But also as well, Jimmy Hart got a copy of that match and showed it to Paul Orndorff, who showed it to Eric Bischoff, which enabled me to get into WCW indirectly. So that one match at the Sumo Arena with Dragon worked out so well that it actually got me a job in two separate territories. If you guys haven't seen it and you're interested in, in kind of my earlier days, it's a, it still holds up. It's a great match. I was 24 at the time, but I still can watch it and go, there's some, there's some potential here. And you, know, you mentioned uh, WCW. When you end up going to WCW, a match that feels like it's a big point in your career is the Super Brawl 8 match with Juventud Guerrera, uh, mask versus t title. Um, I mean, for you, because you, you were in WCW, you were a babyface, and then eventually you turn heel, and you have this epic match with Hoovy, and he loses the mask. How important is that match to you, and how big do you think that is to your run there? Well, Bischoff was going through this phase where he didn't want the luchadors to have masks. He, he didn't think the masks mattered. So if you remember, that was the time when he made, you know, Hooventude lose his mask, he made Rey Mysterio lose his mask. Like just decisions that you look back at now and go, what the f***, you know? But I always had great chemistry with Hooventude, and we always had great matches. And this was, once again, this amazing match at Super Bowl where if he lost, he would have to take his mask off. And I built it up because he's actually a pretty good-looking guy. So I was going opposite and, like, telling people how ugly he was. Uh, like, he's, he looks like Quasimodo. He's Quasi-Juice. He's ugly. He's hideous. I saw him with his mask off. I almost threw up. So when he did finally take his mask off, people would go, what's he talking about? He's a good-looking guy, whatever it may be. So that was kind of a big deal because taking a mask uh, from a luchador is kind of the ultimate sign of disrespect to do that. But it's good. it was good heat for me. And that's when I started doing the collector gimmick where I would take something from every opponent that I had, which was like Quasi-Juice's mask and like Disco Inferno's headband, which was just like a string or something. 
Prince Nakamaki's Mahi Mahi, which is a lava lava. I couldn't pronounce anything right back then. So I would have all of these kind of uh, collector's items that I would steal from people after I beat them. And Juventus Mask was a big deal, and it actually helped him because people could see his face now. And in Mexico, masks meant so much more than they did in the States. And, and the biggest thing with wrestling is seeing people's faces, facial expressions when they're doing a match. And with Hoovy's mask off, he got a lot more baby face sympathy because of that. And that's basically, I think, the indirect reason as to why Bischoff wanted him to lose the mask. But that was a, that was a really big deal. And it's funny because I remember I was, I was doing this shtick where I would wear the belt as long as I could during a match. I've never seen anybody do that. I would wear the belt. I'm not taking this belt off. It's my belt. And then something would happen where the heel would kick me in the stomach. And he'd be like, you fall down, and the, you gotta take the back. So like, there's stuff like that that I remember doing that I still haven't seen. It was just this real obnoxious asshole over the top heel, and once again, just throwing darts at a board, trying anything I could to try and get over because there was so much emphasis on the NWO side of things that a guy like me could just basically do whatever he wanted, and nobody would say anything. So that's what I did, and it kind of started working. And then, you know, right after that, you have the, the series with Dean Malenko. And Dean Malenko, who maybe didn't show a lot of charisma in his face a lot of the time on screen, you kind of took advantage of that in character, and it became this kind of fun rivalry that you guys had, the uncensored match in Slambury. And, I mean, even with him in the mask and him taking it off, that feud feels like a really important one, and those matches feel but they were another building block for you to get bigger. Well, the thing about Dean is, like, he is very stone-faced, but he's super funny. He's the king of one-liners backstage. Uh, I remember Brian Nobbs was walking backstage with, like, really skimpy thong underwear on, and Dean goes, that's not a G-string, that's the whole alphabet. <laughs> and then we go to a strip club, and there's a really skinny stripper. He goes, I don't know whether to tip her a dollar or food stamps. Just like... Shit like that constantly throwing them at you. So, um, but in the ring, he was very serious. But the thing with the Malenko angle that worked is, once again, we had great chemistry, and we were just doing whatever we could to try and, you know, keep our heads above water because there was so much emphasis on the NWO. And I think it really helped me in my later career to know that if you got TV time, it doesn't matter how long, how short it is, winning, losing, whatever, you got to make it good. And you got to make it something that people are going to remember and be excited to see. You know, and I always say that to people, the kid, like nowadays in AW or something, you know, so-and-so's angry that he has to lose a match. And it's like, I lost a match in 32 seconds to Sergeant Craig Pittman at the Superdome in New Orleans on Nitro. You think I wanted to do that? You guys even know who Sergeant Craig Pittman is? No, you don't. And I lost to him in 32 seconds in front of 40,000 people. But I had to do something to get remembered. So I remember there was a kid in the front row, and I grabbed the kid, and I held on my shoulders and looked at the camera and smiled. And people were like, that was so cool when you held up that kid. What a, what a great guy. And like, at least in this 32-second loss to Sergeant Craig Pittman, there was something positive from it. So the Malenko thing that was really cool is that Dean, Dean's wife was having a baby, so he was going to be gone for three months. And I was the guy that was going to put him out. And then I had to keep the angle rolling when he wasn't even on TV. How do you do that? How do you do an angle with someone that's not even there for three months? Well, I figured it out. And I just came up with all these different ideas. It's, I remember I, I, I went to uh, um, a photocopy place, like a, like a photo place. And I asked them for the biggest poster-sized Dean Malenko 
picture that I could get. And I said, we got you covered. And I come back, and they give me, like, a, this is the size of the picture. And I'm like, I need something bigger. Like, that's the biggest. We got. Oh, it's not big enough. So I finally found a place that made this big, giant Dean Malenko poster. And I put it in a frame and put it on an easel. And I interviewed Dean Malenko, because the, the, the poster has as much personality as the real Dean Malenko does. So I'd be like, so Dean, what are you going to do to Chris Jericho when he comes back? Ah, exactly. And what are you, and like, just like standing there completely straight, playing it straight, and people are going, like, well, this guy's such an asshole. And I was talking about his dead father and all these other things. But the best part was, because I had no stroke in WCW, I couldn't put the easel on the production truck. I had to carry the easel with me everywhere I went. You can't check an easel at baggage claim. So I would get on the plane and, you know, sit in the back, middle seat smoking. I have my stupid easel. Sorry, sir, sorry, sorry. And open it up and fit the easel in there. And it's like, why do you have an easel? It's like, don't worry about it. It's a long story. Show up at work with my stupid easel. But I mean, once again, if I don't bring an easel, who's going to bring an easel, right? So you got to do it, right? So anyways, that kind of was a real good test for me because all of those Malenko matches we had were great. Like, all of them were great. But the whole angle and the whole storyline really taught me, like, you have to make the most out of it and you got to squeeze as much as you can out of this to keep people entertained knowing that Dean's not going to be there. And then we finally do this match against, uh, I think it was against Hoovy for the Cruiserweight title. And the winner of a battle royal gets the shot for the Cruiserweight title, right? And I think, no, sorry, I was the Cruiserweight champion. So the winner of the battle royal gets a shot for the Cruiserweight championship to, against me. That's what it was. So they do the battle royal, and I'm like, my job was to announce the guys as they came to the ring. And I'm just burying everybody. Like, if you watch it back now, I'm, I'm the heel, but I'm like, I'm the worst heel ever. I'm just, like, every single guy that comes down, I'm telling jokes. Like, Silver King with, you know, enough frequent flyer points, he's going to become Gold King. And, you know, the winner of the Lou Ferrigno Incredible Hulk lookalike contest, El Dandy, and all these different things that I was saying. Uh, and the point being was, I, I was trying to keep it entertaining because these guys had nameless, faceless, uh, no real uh, character. And there was a guy in the company called... Halloween, who was not a great wrestler. But he had a cool-looking costume with a mask. And so what we thought was, let's have Dean return. But we can't just put a, a masked wrestler and just call him. Some of the guy that we had down there was called El Grillo, which is the cricket. And where that came from is Eddie Guerrero used to call his Johnson... A cricket. Why is that? Because he would take his Johnson and slap it in the side of his thigh and go. <laughs> so it was El Grillo. So we had some jobber guy. We got a mask costume made. And this is El Grillo. So people think, like, that's Dean Malenko. He's totally going to be El Grillo. It's like this guy. And then we had Halloween. But what we did was the swerve was that El Grillo was just somebody else got thrown out. And at the end of the match, Hooventud and Halloween are the last two, and Hooventud just jumps over the top to the floor. And so everyone's like, what's up with this? And I get in the ring ready for my title match, and I'm looking at the timekeeper or whatever, and now Halloween unmasks, and it's Dean Malenko. 
who we haven't seen for three months. And the crowd went bananas. I'll never forget. It was one of the loudest reactions. Probably the loudest reactions Dean ever got. I'm not saying that in a, in a cut down. People were losing their mind because they didn't see it coming. And that's the, that's the coolest part of wrestling. When, when you guys don't see it coming, and afterwards you go, that's so f- cool. We thought it was a grill, but it was Halloween. This is great. And then he beats me up, pins me, and wins the match, like, you know, in 30 seconds or whatever it was. That, to me, was the best Dean Malenko-Chris Jericho match, not from a technical standpoint, but from a whole storyline and an angle. And it worked so well that it's still, to this day, one of the classic moments of my career. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. So, you know, after that in WCW, we know the kind of trials and tribulations you went through. The Goldberg thing didn't work out the way you wanted it to. You were going to leave. You go to WWF. And then in those kind of first few months, it's a bit, you know, touch and go with what's going on. But I would say one of the first big matches you had in WWF that were just, you know, big featured and everything kind of went right was the last man standing match with Triple H at Fully Loaded 2000. Um, Can you talk about that match and how important that match was to you kind of getting up the card in WBF and being seen as more than just, you know, a, a mid-card comedy character or whatever. What, how important was that match? Triple H and I didn't get along back at, at that point in time. There was, there was a lot of animosity for real because I had the audacity to come to WWE. And that people didn't like it. They didn't want WCW guys coming to WWE because they felt we were inferior. So you could do 10 things right, but if you did one thing wrong, you were under the microscope, you know, and you were in trouble. And those guys had pull, so they would bury you to Vince. And it just it was, it was just politics, right? And I didn't really know much about politics at the time, but I learned very, very quickly. And I remember Triple H, when I first got there, he said, if you ever need anything, give me a call. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And I remember we were in San Jose, and I was trying to find directions to Stockton or something like that, and I couldn't find one. I was like... I'll call Triple H. He seemed like a nice guy. He seemed like a cool guy. And he, he gave me his number. This will be the start of our, our friendship. You know, we're going to get along. We're going to be friends. So I call him. And he's like, hello, who's this? It's, uh, it's Chris Jericho. Yeah. Hey, do you know um, how to get to Stockton? Yeah. You want to know how to get to Stockton? Yeah. Buy a fucking map. <laughs> and I hear this laughter in the background of X-Pac and Road Dogs. And hangs up. And I'm like, well, there goes that friendship down the toilet. <laughs> so that was kind of the initial you know, idea there. And so there was a lot of issues between the two of us. There was a problem that, that I had with China that was kind of predicated by him. And I almost got fired a, about a month in because Vince said, you know, the, the problem is, is I got called into a meeting with Vince, Jim Ross, and Blackjack Lanza. And that's when Vince was like, you know, the problem with you is you're the drizzling shits. You're not worth the paper your contract is printed on. And I was like, you're green as grass. I'm like, man, jeez, lighten up, dude. So anyways, uh, it was very, very, uh, lots of heat, shall we say. So when I finally got the chance to work with Triple H, now if you remember prior to The Last Man Standing, I won the WWF title, WWF at the time, WWF title from Triple H 
on Raw uh, for like 15 minutes. Which, if you watch that one back, it's in State College, Pennsylvania. The crowd loses their mind when I pin him. And that's where it's like, it, if Vince just would have gone with this, he could have built me into a big star at the level of all those other guys, and so everyone would have a different shade to paint with, right? But that's not the way. You have to, you know, you have to earn respect and earn your way there in WWE, so whatever it was. So I had to give the, the belt back after 15 minutes. But I know that Vince saw the reaction, and Triple H did too. Didn't matter if you like me or not. Business is business, and people like this kid. So they came to this pay-per-view. I believe it was called Fully Loaded, when it was going to be three of the young guys, up-and-coming guys, against three of the established guys. And I could be wrong on this. You guys probably know better than I do. But, but I believe the three matches were Kurt Angle versus The Undertaker, Chris Benoit versus The Rock, and Chris Jericho versus Triple H, last man standing. And this was kind of our you know, coming out party of, of getting a chance to really show what we could do. And Triple H was great in that match. We, we had a, a great match. I still remember Stephanie McMahon has the hardest slap in wrestling. And she slapped me in that match so hard. It's like one of those slap contests that you watch these two big guys and they slap each other in the face until someone falls down. I, I wanted to fall down. It was very stiff. And I remember, too, that the table that the finish was based around, there was a big sign in gorilla position that said, stay away from the Spanish announce table. Awesome. Stay away. The producers said it. The, the agents said it. Everybody said it. There's a sign in the gorilla, stay away. And the match before us was China versus Perry Saturn. Guess what China did not do? She did not stay away. They hit this table and collapsed it. And something in my head says that maybe she might have done that on purpose because it was her ex-boyfriend that was in the next match. Maybe, I don't know. But anyway, so that's our finish. And they do this right at the end. We have like five minutes to come up with a new finish. It was supposed to be like a belly to back through that, something along those lines. And basically what we had to do was go to the, the dasher boards, which are those like the black boards, you know, like just basically little like fences and do it off of that, which was really hard because it's, you know, and Triple H and I are not the most agile of guys. And I remember, like, we're climbing on this thing. So, are you ready? Are you ready? I think so. Let's go. And we finally did the finish. So the finish, we, we, we land on the table. And both guys are out. Crowd is going bananas because they just know that Chris Jericho is going to get up right one second before Triple H does. And with last man standing, you count to 10. And whoever doesn't answer the 10 count loses. And everyone knew that I was going to answer the 10 count except for... He answered the 10 count, and I did not, and he won. And I still look back on that and go, why would you put over Triple H, the heel, who's already been world champion multiple times, instead of the hot young upstart who just tore the house down uh, when he won the world title and got this reaction, and it still was another little dig where it's like, if it was me, I would say, dude, put the guy over. I mean, I called Vince the first time I worked John Cena on a pay-per-view and said, Vince, let me put him over. Why? Because I, I, I think you should go over. That guy doesn't have anything. <laughs> John Cena. He's got nothing that impresses me. I was like, just let me put him over. So I put him over. But that's, that's what a veteran does for a younger guy. When the time is right, you don't do it every night. But in my opinion, that was a great night for me to go over, and I didn't. So it was a great match. It was my first great match I had in WWE 
but I just feel it was the wrong finish. Because it's a, it's a last man standing. It's like losing a cage match. You really don't lose. Someone calls out the door or someone goes over the top. No one's getting pinned here. And we both went down. I should have got up at 10. He falls down at 9. There's a new hero in, in the company. So once again, I can't book it, but if I look back and think it should have went that way, it didn't. But does it affect the quality of the match? Absolutely not, because it was a very, very, very great match for sure. Speaking of you and Triple H, the following year you guys have that, uh, that tag match, the main events Raw, you and Chris Benoit against Steve Austin and Triple H, which was voted, I think, at one point Raw's greatest match. Um, and that was a time where you know they, they didn't Rock was out, Rock was gone, they didn't really have they hadn't pushed them they knew or young, and you guys were put into this position. I mean, talk about the experience of doing that match. Well, once again, Chris and I are always on the edge, on the verge of getting the push to the next level. But there's something about us that Vince didn't quite believe in at that point in time. Maybe it was the height, maybe it was I don't know. I'm not sure what it was, but this is when they had turned Austin heel, which as we look back in retrospect was kind of a bad idea, but then they put Austin and Triple H together, and they were called the two-man power trip, and they became, I think, the world champion, the intercontinental champion, and the tag team champions. They had all the titles, and I remember um, a week or two before that, I showed up in Oklahoma City, and I had a match against Triple H for the intercontinental title. And there was this writer called Irish Pete. Why? Because he was from Ireland. How clever is that? And he had this chipped, like, Jim Carrey and Dumb and Dumber tooth. And it, I can't do an Irish accent, for, especially in front of you guys. It'll sound like an English accent. But he's like, uh, uh, he's like you, I'm going to pretend because I have to say it. <laughs> you, get, you get a bitch against Triple H for the Intercontinental title. And I was like, oh, wow. Who's winning? You are. Ah, just kidding. He's winning. <laughs> I remember just looking at Irish Pete and just saying, I want to knock that stupid Jim Carrey tooth right out of your stupid Irish head. Anyways, um, so it was kind of like they would win, they would win, they would win. And finally, it's all coming to fruition where Benoit and Jericho are going to get the big victory. And believe me, it was a big victory to go over in Triple H at this point in time, and Steve Austin as well. I mean, you can't get any bigger than those guys, and not only bigger from a, from a, from a fan standpoint, but from a Vince McMahon standpoint. These are his guys. These are his, his moneymakers, right? So we, we go into the match, and it was in San Jose. And once again, I sound like, you know, I caught a fish that was this big. If you watch this match back, the crowd is losing their minds. It was such a great time. Uh, for wrestling because it had just started to, to get to the next level of action, but people hadn't seen everything like, like they have now, so they're kind of a little bit desensitized. This one, they bought into it. They were so excited and so into it. And the finish of the match was going to be that a um, bunch of different things happen. I end up hitting Austin with the lion salt. Triple H comes in with a sledgehammer. I move. He hits Austin with the sledgehammer. I take Triple H out. Benoit does a diving headbutt. One, two, three. We win. And this is going to be our coronation to the next level. Well, a funny thing happened. I have Steve Austin in the walls. Triple H comes in from behind to knock me down and take me out onto the floor. When he hits me, he was supposed to do something else too, and then suddenly he's gone. And 
when that happens, you know, uh-oh, something's not right here. Because these are four pros amongst pros. You don't forget spots or you don't do stuff. You know what I mean? And I went onto the floor and he's just lying there like not even screaming. He's there saying like, I think I tore my quad. And I was like, what? I think I tore my quad. So I was supposed to give him the walls of Jericho on the announce table. If you guys have seen the match, you know what I'm talking about. And I said to him, what do you want to do? And he said, just keep going. And I said, do you want me to give you the walls? He said, yes. So I go up on the table. Once again, torn quad, what is the walls of Jericho? It works your knees and your legs, right? And so I remember turning him over onto this table and just hearing this like, ah, like real grunt of true pain, not selling. And just, I, I, it's, it's like the straightest walls of Jericho ever. I'm, just, I'm trying to hold his legs as straight as I can. You know, usually he'd be locked right in. And once again, animosity or not, this is one of, the, one of your teammates who's hurting. So I put it in there, and then I go inside and do what I'm going to do, and I hit Austin with the moonsault. And I'm like, there is no way he's going to get in here with that sledgehammer. But somehow that came in with a sledgehammer. He did the spot, and Chris hit the finish, and one, two, three, and people are going crazy, and new tag team champions, Chris and Chris. And I remember, like, I am not Triple H's biggest fan, but this guy earned my eternal respect by just how tough he was to go through that. You know, and I, I remember, right? And it sucked because when you have a great match, you go to the back and you have the celebration. Everybody in the back is just high-fiving and Vince will give you a, a handshake and a hug and that's rare. It's like having like a, a dad who doesn't love you that finally, you know, come here, kid. You're like, oh, I love you, Dad. And um, we didn't get that because we had to go to the trainer's office where we found out that Triple H was going to be out for the next six months or whatever it was. So great match, but just completely like because he got hurt. But um, when you look back on it, it was one of the most incredible matches for so many reasons. And like I said, I don't know what a five-star match is, but I remember like it didn't get five stars. And I was like, well, I don't know how much better you can get than that. Plus, this guy got hurt. Like, this is a classic moment in pro wrestling history. And I still feel that to this day. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. The last part of our Triple H trilogy <laughs> within your matches is, you know, you have the WrestleMania 18 match, and even though it's a good match, like, it, it doesn't really matter because it follows Rock and Hogan. So, you know, that's out. But then you guys have the, the Judgment Day 2002 Hell in a Cell match and that almost felt like that was I mean that wasn't going to be the match at Wrestlemania but it felt like that was the Triple H and Chris Jericho match with how the characters were at that point did that help and give you any vindication for maybe feeling a bit let down by Wrestlemania well I mean in a way it did and here was the cool thing about it was like the night after Wrestlemania after being the undisputed champion and losing it I showed up for Raw in Montreal and I had nothing to do. I was off the show. 
Now, this isn't like modern times, like AEW, where we just have such a big roster, not everybody's on the show every week, and it's not a big deal. Back then, if you're not on the show, something wrong. I was like, I've just been the f***ing undisputed champion for four months, and I'm not even on the show. And I remember I pitched this idea where I would come in, and then someone would tell me I'm not on the show, and this guy, Sylvain Grenier, would go, oh, you're not on the show, and I, just, I would just beat the shit out of him. That's my spot on the show. And so Vince approved it. I remember I said to Sylvain, I said, dude, I apologize, man, but I'm going to kick your ass. He's like, oh, whatever, you can do it, go for it. And I beat him up so bad because I was legit bad. And I took it out on this poor French-Canadian guy. But <laughs> I remember Undertaker was watching, and after he goes, he goes, that was real to you, wasn't it? I said, yeah, you want some? What did you say? Nothing. So that was where I was at. Like, now, it's like, what am I, what am I going to do? So then they, they come up with the idea to do this Hell in the Cell. And, you know, it's just basically an attraction, and it's kind of a blow-off, and, you know, it's fine. But the thing I really am proud of for that Hell in the Cell is it's the first one that didn't feature a crazy bump off the top of the cage. That was kind of a, a Hell in the Cell standard between Mick and Sean took the first one off the side, and... Uh, this guy's falling, and Rikishi's falling off into the, the back of the truck and all these other things. So we said, let's make this match a bridge to where people don't expect to have someone fall off every time. Because sooner or later, you can't do that all the time, you know? So then we thought, well, why don't we do the finish on top of the cage? Huh, that's interesting. It hadn't been done at that point in time, right? And I remember when... I pitched the idea. We pitched the idea to Vince. He's like, well, the idea of the Hell in a Cell is nobody can get out of the door. How are you going to get up there? And I'm thinking, well, maybe we can crawl up the inside. And it's like, well, there's not a hole in the top of the cage. And how are you going to crawl across? And then Vince goes, why don't you take your arms and shoot some web to the top of the cage and slide up there? Like, what? And Triple H goes, he went and saw Spider-Man last night. Can you imagine Vince McMahon at the movies? <laughs> imagine if you guys went to the movies and you see Vince sitting there. I remember once I asked him if he wanted to go to ACDC with me at the garden, and he's like, uh, and I'm like, what if he says yes? Is he going to show up in a suit? What's he going to do? He couldn't make it, thankfully. Anyway, so uh, we couldn't use uh, uh, spider's webs because we're not mutants. So... We came up with the idea, which once again, all this stuff when I'm telling it to you guys, you're like, yeah, yeah, we've seen it all before. But at the time, you hadn't seen it. How do you get out of the cage? Well, someone has to get taken out. Cameraman, or how about the referee? So Timmy White, one of the greatest guys I ever met in the history of this business, he just passed away. Here's the Timmy. We love you, Timmy. So I think you might have even made his idea. We pitched it to him. So we have to bump you, Timmy, so you get taken out of the cage. And it can't just be a normal ref bump, you know, oh, someone gets squished in the corner, and he's like, he, he, I think from what I recall, it was actually his idea. And he said, I'll be on the, the ring apron, go to charge at Triple H, have him move and push you into the ropes, which is ipso facto hitting me, I'll take the bump off the apron into the side of the cage. Now, the thing is, hell in the cell, there's a big space between the apron and the cage. So there's a, there's a little bit of a jump. And he said, I remember he, said he had a Boston accent, very much a hard. He goes, hit me hard. 
That's just not going to look good. Hit me hard. Hit me really hard. So obviously you don't want to hurt anybody, but when I came off, man, I'm like, Timmy, here we go. And I came off and I hit him. With, I still use the move quite often because it just looks so vicious. If a guy's in the apron, I run as fast as I can and just basically shoulder check him off the apron where he goes into the, into the guardrail. So I hit him really hard and he took this bump right into the cage and legit basically destroyed his shoulder. He never, he never, he actually never refereed again. He became a backstage guy. But he's like, I told you to f hit me hard. Now let's go have a beer. But so he's down. And now because the ref is down, we got to get him out of here. Undo the door. Come in with the medical team to take out the ref. And here goes Jericho, right? And then we start fighting whatever it was where he's chasing me. And I, I can't remember. I got nowhere to go. So I start climbing. He goes to the desk and pulls out a barbed wire bat. And now we're climbing to the top, and he's got this bat, which I remember, he's like, how am I supposed to carry a bat and climb? Like, it's like, yeah, you're right. So we had to put, it's, it's very simple, but you're thinking, how do we do this? So we put a little loop of, like, a leather loop so he could drape it around his arm like a, like a purse. So we'd have it on his arm as he's climbing. And this big, giant bat is hanging. And we go to the top of the cage. Now, you guys just saw Blood and Guts. We'll probably talk about it with what happened at Blood and Guts with one of the, the most insane spots that I've ever had. Having said that, there is something that's even more insane. So you're on top of the cage. Now, once again, they reinforce the top of this Hell in the Cell. And I'll tell you guys something else. If you went to a Hell in the Cell show, if you're on the ground looking up, you're like, that's not too bad. I mean, it's high, but it's not that high. I had an idea where I was going to jump off the top of the cage onto Triple H and the Un-Americans, who were my minions at the time. I climbed to the top of the cage. Looking up, that's not too bad. You get up there looking down, you're like, there's no way I'm jumping off this thing because everybody looks this big like up there is us like there's no way Mick Foley is the craziest man I've ever seen in the world but here's the crazy spot for me Triple H comes to the top we fight for a little bit he hits me in the head with the barbed wire bat now the the idea is we're not barbarians here people and I don't think I'm remiss in saying that you can trim the barbs in certain points in time, especially when it involves a baseball bat getting hit into my head. This thing gets stuck in my head because the barb got intertwined. The cut barb still was enough to get cut, and it pulled this huge chunk of my hair out. And I'm like, that hurts. Then the next spot is he kicks me and hooks me in for the pedigree on top of the cage. Now, doesn't sound too crazy, right? You go up there. And see how crazy it doesn't sound. I'm now looking through the top of this cage with my arms behind my back, looking at this ring. And all I can think of was this roof collapsed with Mick and Undertaker. And now I'm convinced this roof is going to collapse when he pedigrees me on the top. He's going to be right on top of me. And he's going to drive me all the way to the mat. and He's going to kill me. And that's all I'm thinking. And so when he gives me the pedigree, it's like in slow motion. I'm like, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to... That was easy. Didn't even hurt. So I did not die. I'm still alive. But that was terrifying. And then that's basically what the finish of the match was. So I was really proud of the fact that we gave a great match. Once again, the bridge between having to take this crazy stump bump just because it's what you do in Hell in a Cell and then having, okay, now we have gone on top of the cage and I believe for the next few Hell in the Cells, they actually stayed inside the cage. 
but we had introduced the concept that you don't have to fall from the top, so it kind of made it a better match, in my opinion, and more people could be in it because you weren't expected to take this crazy bump from the top to the ground. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. We can't talk about your biggest matches without talking about this might just get an applause before we even talk about it. Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania 19. I mean, he he just come back he just come back and done the match with Triple H, but then he does this with you at WrestleMania and I mean, you couldn't really ask for anything better, right? Yeah, he had no intentions of wrestling uh, after that one match he had with Triple H at SummerSlam and we had just done a one-off highlight reel in December where he was, uh, I had him on the highlight reel, and I started burying him, saying he was an old man. He was 39 at the time. <laughs> Think about that. And then he ends up super kicking me, and that's the end of the segment. That was all it was supposed to be. We go to the back, and Vince is there. He goes, you smell that? <laughs> no, what? Smells like money. <laughs> so he then decided that he wanted to do Jericho and... HBK at WrestleMania, and Sean was like, if I'm going to do a WrestleMania, because keep in mind, he's Mr. WrestleMania, right? He had the best string of WrestleManias ever uh, to this day. And he said, if I'm going to do one, I'm going to do it with Jericho. And we did the storyline of kind of the student and the teacher, where the teacher becomes more evil and then wants to kill the student, like every karate movie that you've ever seen. And it's funny, because on the build-up, I had ripped off spots from Sean throughout my whole career. And in the build-up for that match... We showed side by side a high spot that he did at SummerSlam that I did with Lance in my very first match where? In Pinocchio, Alberta, the Moose Hall. Up and over, hip toss, reverse victory roll, which is now called a Frankensteiner. So they showed those side by side. So we had everything built up. It was a great build. Uh, the story was there. The anticipation was there. The history was there. And now we just have to put together the match. Now, when you do a WrestleMania match they have rehearsal times where you go to a ring that's set up or maybe it's the ring in the stadium and you go over your match and they have kind of a, a docket where you go and put down, okay, Thursday between noon and two, Jericho and Michaels. Let's say that's what it was. So about a week before this, I was in a sporting goods store buying a black pair of Speedos, Speedo tight little bathing suit to wear underneath my wrestling tights, which now you know what I wear underneath my wrestling tights. There you go. See the stuff you find out here on Inside the Ropes. It's amazing. And I was there looking at these, like, what size am I? Am I medium? Am I extra large? And then I was like, oh, oh, wow. And this idea hit me. And then another one hit me. And they just all, like, dominoes, just like. I went up to the lady at the cash register. Can I please, please borrow a piece of paper and a pen? You have to make sure you give my pen back. Yeah, I'll give it back. How am I going to know you're getting my pen back? Just give me the pen. And I start writing this stuff right in front of her so she can see that I'm not going to steal her pen. And I just write down idea, 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 idea. On the back of a, it's called Dick's Sporting Goods. On the back of a Dick's Sporting Goods uh, uh, receipt printout. 
So I take it to the, uh, the stadium where we're having our practice. Noon, Thursday, our matches on Sunday. I sit down, Sean sits down, and he asks me, you got anything? I can't do a Shawn Michaels accent, but maybe it's probably better than my Irish accent. You got anything? You got anything, kid? Any of that artsy-fartsy stuff you like doing? And I said, well, I got, an, I got an idea for the beginning of the match. And he goes, wow. And I said, do you got anything? He goes, I have an idea for the end of the match. I show him my idea for the beginning, which is about 20 ideas in a row. He shows me his idea for the finish, which is about 20 ideas in a row. We both agree. See you later. We're up and out and gone in 10 minutes. And that just shows the true art of wrestling. You know, we didn't practice anything. We didn't go over anything for hours on end. Ten minutes, two pros who know exactly what they need to do, and we had never been in the ring before. We had never touched ever until that match. And so that's, to me, one of my favorite matches and still pops in my head when you say, what's your favorite? Not only because we stole the show at WrestleMania, which is what everybody tries to do. And how many WrestleManias has there been now? 35? 38. 38? So there's been 38 matches in the history of the WWE that have stolen a WrestleMania. And ours was one of them. Two last stories before you clap. (laughs) There's people that were saying at the time that the two best matches were Jericho and Shawn and Brock and Kurt Angle. And Shawn kept hearing that and he goes, I don't understand it. Remember, this is where Brock did the shooting star press and landed on his head. He goes, how can their match be better than ours when the finish was Brock Lesnar landing on his head? Doesn't count. We win. And then we go backstage, and Johnny Ace is back there. He was our agent or the coach of the match, and we had 25 minutes, and we went 29. And I I don't even know what the Johnny was thinking, but I remember one of the first things he said was, you guys went over. You, You went four minutes over. And Sean goes, hey, when you have a five-star match, you can tell me that it went over. Until then, shut your mouth. <laughs> There's the arrogant HBK that I've been waiting to see. None of this Christian guy. Born again, Sean Michaels. Um, you have that Sean match for WrestleMania 19, and then in 2005, you, you leave, you take some time off. And when you come back, you're kind of still doing the Y2J thing, and it's like maybe like a little transition yeah. period. And what changes things and changes your character is this feud with Shawn Michaels, which is iconic, and it culminates in the No Mercy ladder match. I mean, it's got to be wild for you that you know you had this kind of dream scenario where you work with somebody you looked up to, and now you get to do it all these years later and, all, and top what you did before. Yeah, I mean, it was just, once again, reading the room. Like I said, when I came back as that Y2J character, I remember Don Callis asked me, because I had short hair at the time, because uh, I'd been gone for two and a half years, and he said, are you going to get hair extensions? And I said, why? He goes, well, Y2J has long hair. And I was like, who cares? Who cares if, like, you know, Bruce Dickinson cut his hair and James Hetfield cut their hair? Well, he was right. Y2J came out with short hair, and there was a disconnect. And then I realized very quickly, this is a nostalgia act, and it sucks. Like, it's not good, which started a long history of me constantly evolving and changing whenever I feel myself getting into this nostalgia zone. I don't like it. You know what I mean? Like, I love the fact that, you know, people love the Y2J gimmick or love the list or love all these things. But when they say, you got you to gotta go back with the list. No, it's done. That was a great moment in time. And now I think of other stuff. 
so that's kind of what started this. And then when I decided to turn into the suit and tie guy heel, which was a combination of Nick Bockwinkle from the AWA, one of the all-time greats, and Anton Chigurh from No Country for, for Old Men, which is a Coen Brothers movie that I think Javier Bardem might have won an Oscar for playing this evil serial killer who never yelled. He just talked very low. And just, this is what's going to happen. Very matter of fact, I can't help myself. You have to flip the coin. And if you get the wrong side, I'm going to murder you. There was no yelling and screaming. This, And I came out and talked like that. I remember when I first started doing that, fans would I'd be talking really quietly. And they'd say, we can't hear you. And that's when I knew I had them. Because now you have to really pay attention to what I'm saying. You really have to listen to what's going on. And by the way, that what chant was at its apex right there. I never got it once. Because people couldn't concentrate on yelling what they had to concentrate on what i was saying so i would talk really low and this is going to happen so it really created this whole new heel character now once again though if you don't have a great dragon slayer there's no need for a dragon sean michaels is the ultimate baby face he's the ultimate heel as well that's why in my opinion he's the greatest of all time but as a as a baby face there is nobody better at connecting with the audience at selling and making people feel what he's feeling and that's why this whole feud started. Because originally, it was just supposed to be a one-month feud. Then we're like, what are you doing in a, in, in a month? Nothing. What are you doing after this month? Nothing. Then why are we rushing this? Let's continue. And that's how we created this whole seven-month program, which in my opinion is still one of the greatest stories of all time. And Blackjack Lanza, God, God bless his soul, was a long-time WWE employee. The last time I saw him, he said, still best. He used to smoke and blow smoke in your face still one of the best stories in WWE history <sighs> jericho versus michaels <sighs> thanks jack <laughs> so i really am proud of that and it culminated in a main event pay-per-view match for the WWE world title and it started as just a one-off throwaway match well that should be a good match jericho michaels you know that became, like I said, this program for the title. And the reason why I really, really love that ladder match, and, and it, it started with the ladder match I had with Benoit years earlier at the Royal Rumble, is I not, once again, you've seen a million, but at the time, there was Sean and Razor, there was a couple others, and I remember sitting down with Chris and then with Sean. How can we use this ladder as a weapon? Not climb it and do jumps off it. There's a place for that, but this is a ladder what can we do to utilize this in the way that it should be used which is as a a weapon of assault and battery and the benoit one works so well and so the jericho michaels one works well because we, i remember just sitting there like how about this how about that how about this i just watched it back about a year ago and i was like this is a great match it's a great ladder match maybe one of the greatest ladder matches of all time but once again there's a couple big bumps but not many. Most of them are just me and him beating each other up with this ladder. And I remember, I always say, you've got to be careful with ladders. Why? Because they can bite you. How do you mean? The ladder is between the second and third rope. Sean jumps on it. I am supposed to put my hand up and take it in the face. Problem is, hand doesn't come up quick enough. That thing hit me in the fucking mouth. And guess what happens? You start spitting out chiclets. That's, that's Canadian slang for teeth. And you're like, okay, there's a little gravelly thing. Okay, that's a little bit of my, okay, there's, oh, shit, there's a big tooth. And then you look, and once again, now I am Irish Pete with the Jim Carrey dumb and dumber tooth. And I remember, like, it hurt so bad. 
But here's the sign of a true pro. You got to go to the dentist and get that fixed. I'm like, not before Raw. No, we're getting this on TV. If I snap my tooth in half and look like Lloyd Christmas from Dumb and Dumber, I'm going to show this to millions of people before I get it fixed. And that's what we did. So once again, anytime somebody gets hurt in a classic match, you never want that. But when something like that happens, someone gets cut, for example, and there was no blood intended, but the blood is there. It just adds to the intensity of the overall vibe of the match. And having broken teeth and looking up and having blood come down, there's blood in my fucking nose. And just. And then we had, we had still one of my all-time favorite ladder match finishes, one you never see. It's always some guy gets a bump, other guy climbs up and takes it off, whatever. We were fighting, fighting for the, for the, for the belt. My hand is on one strap. Sean's hand is on the other strap. But I remember we were up there like, how far back can you lean on this ladder holding on? And it's like, okay, it's not slipping out of my hand. Okay, I'm what? and he's right back. So if one of us just went like this, the other guy would fall. So we're holding it. And the idea was I would like slam the belt in his face. He falls down. I get the belt. And still, to me, I've never seen a ladder match with that finish. And that's the hardest thing about ladder matches to this day. What can you do that's never been done before? And when you can come up with something like that, which is to me... Such a smart, common-sense finish. So all of those things add to the fact that this was a classic match for me. And then the icing on the cake was the theme for the pay-per-view that month was All Nightmare Long by Metallica. So I was in a main event for a ladder match for the world title with my boyhood hero, with my favorite band of all time, doing the theme song. And then, you know, you, you've, got to, you've got to follow that. I mean, you, first of all, you had to, you know, wrestle Jimmy Snooker a little bit, WrestleMania, Roddy Piper. Obviously, Steamboat worked out really well. But then you had the feud with Rey Mysterio in 2009. And you guys had that epic match at the Bash where it was mask versus title. And, you know, you've got a history of taking masks from guys, as we talked about earlier. Um, what was it like? Because Rey hadn't really had, like, a special feud in WWE. There was... Obviously, when he won the title, but that was kind of marred and it was being a bit eddy and some people didn't like it. And finally, Ray was getting this classic feud culminating in this match. What was that experience like? Well, Ray and I had known each other since 1993. Uh, Art Barr introduced us in Mexico City in the hotel. I remember when he walked in, like Art Barr comes in, who was, who was a good friend of mine. His love machine was his name. He's passed away in 94. He was Eddie Guerrero's original tag team partner. And Art walks in, and Art was a little bit of like a, you know, like a, like a lunatic type guy, you know, kind of like not crazy, like, you know, party guy, just like maverick. And he walks in the hotel with this little kid, and he takes, he lights up a joint. And I was like, Art, you can't light up a joint in front of this kid. He goes, oh, the kid's 18. I'm like, bullshit. <laughs> How old are you? I'm 18. What's your name? Oscar. Show me some ID. I'm not kidding. I asked him for ID. He showed me his ID because I'm like, I'm not smoking a joint in front of a little kid in Mexico. And then, I, and they said, yeah, he's a wrestler. He's great. I'm like, I'm thinking, he's a wrestler? He's as big as this cup. And he's like, yeah, hopefully you and I can, he still has a voice like this this day. Hopefully you and I can do some matches together. I'm like, yeah, at the very best, you'll be able to carry my ring jacket to the back. Fast forward to where he's one of the greatest of all time and just, Nothing but respect is just this pioneer. And I realized that we had been in the same company many times. We were in WAR together. We were in Mexico together. We were in WCW together. We had never worked a program. In WCW, we did a few matches, but never a real program. And so I went to Vince to pitch the idea of doing a match for his mask. Vince then said, 
nobody cares about the mask. And I said, how do you mean? Because you're selling 500 masks a night? Kids love the mask. He goes, doesn't matter. Why would you want his mask? And here's how I got him. I said, pretend I'm a bully in school, and I want to take your milk money. Not because I need the money, just because I want it, because I'm a bully. He goes, oh, you're on to something. You want his mask just because he wants it. Yeah, I love it. So we start this program, and we had three, maybe even four matches, and they were all just excellent matches from that time frame. But the, the best finished of all of them, and it might be this match or might not be, but it was, it was he goes for the 619, I pull his mask off, he covers his face, and I roll him up one, two, three, and win the title. Now think about that. He's going for a 619. As he's mid-619, I pull his mask off. And I remember thinking, I said, Oscar, do you have a mask that, like, is loose because obviously there's a, a string I can't do that like do you have one that just slips on and off he goes yeah he shows it to me it almost looks like mesh on the back but they're wide open uh holes and I'm like I could put my finger in there and pull it out so I said we're, we're in I remember we we're in Pittsburgh and I said just just bring the mask next week and let's give it a try just to see so we show up in Pittsburgh and he puts the mask on he runs and does the 619 I'm a physician as soon as he goes whoosh, I pull it right off. That's amazing. Let's try one more time. Does it again. Whoosh, I pull it right off. Just like pulling a cherry off a tree. Like boop. And I'm like, that's it. We got our finish. So Ricky Steamboat was our agent. And I said, here's the finish. And I told him the idea. And he went to tell Vince and came back and said, Vince said you can't do it. I said, why? He said, you can't do it. Is he saying that we can't do it because he doesn't want us to do it? Or we can't do it because he doesn't think we can physically do it. Ricky's like, I don't know. So I go to the back. I see Vince. And you got to catch Vince at the right time, any type of scenario. If he's with other people or if he's hungry, if he's you know, cranky because he hasn't eaten, you got to choose your spot. So I went to see him, and he was in a good mood. Always tells a bad joke. Oh, there's Jericho. Pfft. Here comes some bad ideas. <laughs> what do you got, pal? So I know, okay, he's, he's, in, a good, he's in a good frame. I got the finish for the match. Well, Ricky, Rick, Ricky told me, but I don't see how you can do that. You don't see how we can do that, like, physically? He goes, no, you can't do that. He's like, it's going to look really bad. I said, can you just come to the ring with us? He's like, well, I, got I said, come right now. Just come to the ring. Because I know if I, if I wait, I might lose him. So come on. He comes to the ring. He's like, I'll go in five minutes. All you need is 30 seconds. Oscar, get the mask on. Here we go. Boom. Whoosh, boom. How did you do that? I said, what do you mean? He goes, how did you do that? I said, well, I'm not David Copperfield. Like, I'm not a magician. Like, I just did it. Do it again. This is going to, he's like, oh, that's the finish. It's brilliant. It's great, Steamboat. And Steamboat's like, yeah, it's great, Vince. And that's how that finish came about. And the little epilogue to the story is the next month we have a rematch. Same thing again. I pull his mask off. Except for this time, he's got another mask on underneath the first mask. So it's just like, pull it off. I got the mask, turn around. Ah! He hits me with his finish, whatever it was. But it's like you could do so much just based around this mask that nobody cared about. But what we wanted to do was a real Mexico-style mask match, which you hadn't seen in our country at the time. And we pulled it off and still one of my all-time favorite feuds with one of my top five favorite finishes of all time.
So, I mean, this match might sound strange for me to bring this up as one of Jericho's biggest matches, but more for implication, let's talk about Chris Jericho and Kevin Owens at WrestleMania 33. It's the best angle on TV, it's the hottest thing in the company, and it ends up being the second match in WrestleMania. Um, yeah, um, I was told by Vince himself, because we had started this program in the summer, and I remember we got to about October, and I said, we could take this to Mania. And it, in my opinion, was the best story of that Mania season. Uh, it took so many twists and turns, culminates in the Festival of Friendship, which everyone was like, oh, we knew he was going to turn. Nobody knew he was going to turn, because we had, we had planted seeds, we'd, and, it, and when it finally happened, like I said, I wanted that Festival of Friendship to be a combination of an 80s David Lee Roth video and starting as a as a 80s Roth video and ending as the uh, Red Wedding Game of Thrones to where it's the most crazy thing you've ever seen. Like, there's no, no, you can't do that. Oh, my God, don't do it. Oh, it's terrible. And that's what we did. So when the, when the betrayal finally happened, we had it. And Vince told me, Vince wants to talk to you, that the idea is the main event of WrestleMania is going to be Jericho versus Kevin Owens for the world title, and Jericho wins the world title at WrestleMania. The first time ever I would win the world title as a babyface. I've been a world champion seven times in my career. All of them have been as a heel, which tells me how much you guys like me. Um, so that was kind of, that was what I was told. And I was like, this is really cool, but wrestling is wrestling and things change. And the next week, there was a Goldberg segment and a Brock segment, and suddenly it's for the title, and there's this and the other thing. And I was like, well, I guess that idea went out the window. And, 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 I didn't even go bother asking Vince because he doesn't owe me an explanation. Like, hey, why'd you why'd you change your mind, Vince? Well, because he does, and that's what he he just, he felt that as a marquee match, Goldberg and Lesnar for the world title was a bigger money making main event than Jericho versus Owens. Now, was he right? Was he wrong? It doesn't matter what I think. It's not my ice cream shop. I just scoop the vanilla or scoop chocolate, and he's the one who, who does what he wants. So um, that's kind of where that went. So, but the thing is though. Fine, we're not in the main event. No problem. If you look at a WrestleMania card, you guys don't know how long it is. There's 12 matches. The saying is, if you can't go last, go first. If you can't go first, go semi-main event. Other than that, it's kind of a quagmire, and then you really know how much emphasis the match it has from the boss by the amount of time you're given. So we were moved from the, from the main event, world championship match, to the second match of the show and given 15 minutes. And as soon as I heard that and saw that, I'm like, I'm done. There's nothing more I can do here. Same way I felt in WCW when I did the Goldberg program. I was like, this is over. People like this, and there's nothing coming to this. I'm done in WCW. I'm done in WWE because it doesn't matter what I come up with. It's not going to be, well, it, it's going to be as good, but it's going to be really hard to be better than this Kevin Owens Jericho story that we've told for the last seven months. So I knew deep down inside, and I didn't even realize it until about a, about a week or two after WrestleMania. It's like, I'm not into this anymore. I, I had lost my desire to be there. And when you lose your desire to be somewhere, the only, only solution is leave. That leads, that leads us into the next thing. And I, it always makes me laugh because I remember we were doing the Shawn Michaels tour and we came back and that weekend you were announced for the Tokyo Dome with Kenny Omega for Wrestle Kingdom. And everyone was saying... And everyone was saying Jericho's broke the internet... And then the next day, Triple H turned up at the ICW show in Cardiff, and people were going, is that a response to this big Jericho thing? Um, but, I wish. I wish he cared that much. 
But I mean, when you were announced for that, it felt huge because you had always said, you know, I'm a WWE guy. That's what it is. Can you talk a little bit about the decision to do it, and then the fact that you know you guys get the five star match? Yeah, I never wanted to wrestle anywhere but for WWE, and my idea was I'm just going to leave. Judas had just started taking off, uh, so Fozzie was starting to get up there. Like, Let me just concentrate on on the fan on on the Foz and on Judas and everything that's going on. I'll just stay out of wrestling for a while. In that time frame, Don Callis called me. He was doing commentary for New Japan Pro Wrestling. Now, Don and I are from a very small uh, city in, in Canada called Winnipeg. And, you know, yay, Winnipeg, yes. One, one person knows Winnipeg. It's like, the, it's like the equivalent of, like, Wolverhampton or something. <laughs> Don't forget to go to the Winchesters at Wolverhampton. It's Witherspoons, I know. So anyways, and Don was telling me about this guy, Kenny Omega. And I had met him a year prior, but I had never really heard of him other than I knew he was doing really well in Japan. Kenny Omega is the top star in New Japan Pro Wrestling. Not for uh, uh, Gaijin, which is a foreigner, but for anybody. And he said, what would you think about doing a match against Kenny? And instantly, it was right at the time when Floyd Mayweather had fought Conor McGregor. And I remember thinking, this could be the pro wrestling equivalent of that fight, in that you never thought you would see this. And it almost seems impossible. How does Mayweather McGregor, how does this work? How does Omega and Jericho get in there? And I like doing things differently. You guys might have figured that out by now. I like doing things outside of the box, and I like surprising people. And I thought, Jericho versus Omega in the Tokyo Dome is perfect for me, because... I'm stale in WWE, but I still have a really big name. If I go there, it could take things to the next level for me. It could really shake up the wrestling business. So that's kind of how it started. And the first time, I remember we were in Newcastle for a Fozzie gig, the night that that video played in New Japan for Kenny Omega. And yeah, it did break the internet. I got like, you know, 100 texts and emails and tweets because it's like, Jericho, like what? They'd be like if Paul McCartney walked on stage right now. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul McCartney! Did I get anybody with that? Um, but it was, like, it was like that much of a surprise. So when that happened, people were like, holy shit, we never saw this coming. And when we did the match, I remember we structured the deal. My manager and I did it very smartly. Yes, there was a big chunk of change, but we also got a percentage of the additional tickets sold in the Tokyo Dome, which was like 15,000 more tickets. We got a percentage of the increases on New Japan World streaming service. It went up 300% from that match announcement. So that, that match was, might have been my most lucrative match ever, but on top of that, it was like this could really change things for me. I mean, I was a main event guy, but you could change the course of wrestling history with this match. And that's basically what happened because when the match took place, not only was it a tremendous match, and it was another one of the ones like this one I had with Sean. I showed up at the New Japan Dojo, never touched Kenny once, had a finish in mind. He had a beginning in mind. It was kind of the flip-flop with the Sean and Jericho. And we went over a couple things in about 20 minutes, and that was it. We f***ed off. And that was the five-star Tokyo Dome main event, 26-minute match, whatever it was. And I remember when we put together the finish, I said, well, who do we have to tell uh, this finish to to get approval. He's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, who's the agent of the match? He's like, what are you talking about? Approval? Agents? Well, don't we have to tell the cameraman? Which, the cameraman, like, what are you talking about? It's like, you don't have to do any of that. I'm like, oh, I'm not in WWE anymore. It's like Wizard of Oz, and you open the door, and it's all colors. Yes! 
it really reignited my creativity and my love of pro wrestling because I got to be an artist again. Not that I wasn't in WWE. I'm not being bitter or being angry because I'm not. But there's a different way they do things there. And in New Japan, which then begat AEW, you're much more open. You got to be good and you got to be great. And you got to have ideas because if you don't, no one else has them for you. And the caveat to that match was as great as it was, five-star match, took that one-wing angel on a steel chair still to this day hurts my back. But it was worth it because Tony Khan saw that match and that's when he said, I have suspected this for years, but now I have proof that people are looking for an alternative to the WWE and this New Japan match with Jericho and Omega proves it. And that's where the whole real genesis for AEW started was that Tokyo match for Jericho and Omega. So I want to try and I want to try and cover a couple of big AEW matches because we do need to get through your questions as well. I want to talk about the the pandemic because you come to AEW, you win the title, you're a massive star, and then the pandemic happens and you're sort of forced to do these different matches, Stadium Stampede, Mimosa Mayhem. You're forced to do this stuff. Do you think in some ways it was it, it was like a blessing that it showed different stuff that you could do that you would never have been well? First and foremost, you know. I lost the world title two weeks before the pandemic started. Coincidence? I don't think so. <laughs> if Tony would have kept the title on me, none of that shit might never have happened. <laughs> Thanks, Mox. No, uh, we had just gotten a TV deal from TBS for $160 million for four years. We started as an ad rev share, which means any advertising that you get, you get a share of that. Three months in, the demos were so high. Demo God is not a fancy nickname. We really were killing in the demos. So we got this huge television deal from TBS, and then there's a lockdown. And everyone's saying, show reruns, show highlights of old shows. And Tony's like, we can't. We got a live TV show that we have to put on every week. It doesn't matter if there's nobody there. There's a million people watching at home so then you got to get creative and once you, we don't know what's going on is, is this pandemic going to be like stephen king the stand and is this going to wipe out the human race is it two weeks flatten the curve all the stuff that we heard no one knew so all we could do was keep the lights on and keep people entertained so that's when you talk about a mimosa mayhem it was a brilliant idea and i'm saying that because i thought of it you look at it <laughs> You look at it now, it's like, oh, what a dumb idea. You'd fall into a mimosa. At the time, I'm wrestling Orange Cassidy, who is what? The orange juice guy. Who am I? The bubbly guy. You put orange juice and champagne together, what do you get? Mimosa. Let's put together a match that's like one of those FMW uh, no-rope barbed wire with explosives where the guys are on the edge of the ring going like this, and if they fall into the explosive, it, it goes explodes. And all you got to do is do this, and people are like, oh... And then finally someone falls in the explosive and they lose. That's what Mimosa Mayhem was. That came from an FMW match. You're on the edge of this Mimosa, then you finally fall into the drink. It was matches like that, Stadium Stampede. We have no other choice but to try and do stuff to keep people smiling and to do something different. Stadium Stampede, we walked out there with the 10 of us and it's a giant, it's literally a stadium. And guess what's in there? Nothing. What do you want to do? I don't know. <laughs> it's not a lot around here. Giant football field, 60,000 seats. Go nuts, guys. But then we start thinking, okay, let's put together a story. Let's put a ring in there, okay? And then we can start in the ring, and then 
Sammy will do a dive on all ten of us, and then we break off into areas. Okay, well, can we do something off the goalpost? You start shaking the goalpost. Can you climb up there? There's a swimming pool up there. Okay, well, can you do something in the swimming pool? There's a bar over there. Well, let's have a bar fight in, in this. And, you know, and then let's well, the football field. What, what does football teams have? Well, they have mascots, and they've got footballs you can throw at each other. And, you know, so you just kind of start thinking, and then you put all the ideas in a hat, and then you start figuring out what to do and how to shoot it in what order. But all of those things were a direct result of having no people in the crowd, but still having to put on entertaining great TV and original TV. And if we hadn't done all of those things I just discussed, I don't know if AEW would be as big as we are today because we really, I think, gave, and you guys can, can answer this, we gave people a weekly diversion from this shit that everyone was going through to where either, I don't know what's going on, right? But every Wednesday, I could turn on AEW and these guys are going to entertain us for two hours. That was our goal. So with the last, I'm going to tie two matches into one here for the last one. Blood and Guts. Let's talk about uh, both of them. Because in the first one, you take this crazy bump. And then in the second one, you take this mental swing up the top of that cell or cage. And I can't even be angry because it was my idea. But so when I talked about the hell in the cell, how we didn't want to have somebody take a bump off of it and go to the roof... When I started putting together the finish for this match, some, some of the guys were like, we can't do a bump off the top because we did it last year. I said, here's the difference, though. Last year, we did the, the, the blood and guts in Daly's Place, the amphitheater where, where AEW recorded our shows for, for nine months. And what you saw behind this giant, impressive cage was a screen like this. And that was it. Here was the cage, here... And here was the screen. Because there's no arena. Because we were filming the hard camera. This is our entrance place. Just like this. To me, it looked almost like, oh, is this your Widow Hell in a Cell variation, AW? Good job, guys. Good job. Now, we're in Detroit. Detroit Rock City. And there's 12,000 people there. I'm like, can you imagine the shot from the hard camera on top of this cage with you know 6,000 people behind going crazy? That's going to make us look bigger than any other wrestling company in the world. And that was my mindset that, that I said, you guys got to trust me as they did. And when you see Eddie Kingston on top of that thing, throwing Sammy off, that is the debut of Blood and Guts. And Claudio had just started. Everyone loves the giant swing. I was like, you got to give me the giant swing on top of the cage. You have to. And he was like, he always goes, dude. That's his big opening. Like, dude, there's chains everywhere because the chains were pulling the cage back. Dude, I can't, I can't do the swing because there's chains everywhere. Uh, and I'm like, okay, there's chains in the middle. There's nothing over here. It's too close to the edge. I'm like, dude, come on. You're the strongest guy. I wouldn't have done that with anybody else than Claudia. I trust that guy with my life, <laughs> literally, as you saw. And I'm like, you're not that close to the edge, okay? Just do it. Come on. I take the bump down. He grabs my legs. And I'm looking up at this giant ceiling that's like 100 feet and then he starts swinging me. And the secret to the big swing is you look him in the eye. That way you don't get dizzy. But all I'm seeing is people, 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 people. Oh, look how low they are. And then I start losing my mind. I'm like, enough, stop, 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 stop. Because all I'm thinking is like, I'm going this way. I'm going this way. I'm going to go right off the edge. Now, when you watch it back, he had total control. He never left this little space. We could have done 100 reps. But in my mind's eye, I started losing my mind. Stop, stop, stop. But, you know, it had to be done because it just looked so amazing. Everybody's talking about it. Everyone's talking about the match, just how insane it was. 
That to me, the first blood and guts was a run through. The second one really established this amazing creation that AEW came up with that will now be an annual attraction for us. And it was. That match, yes, it did huge numbers. Huge numbers. Very proud of that. Thank you guys. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. Appreciate it. Stay safe. God bless you guys.